joining again our scripture reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 46 and I will be reading verses 8 to 13 verses 8 to 13 the word of the Lord says remember this and stand firm recall it to mind you transgressors Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. What if you knew that one of God's main core values for relationship with him was community? And what if you knew that God had a plan for fractured people like us in communities? And that plan is by reconciling people at the intersection of ethnicity, socio-cultural, uh, economic demographics, et cetera, et cetera. And what if he told you how it could happen? Would you be open to it? Would we give our heart, our minds, our skills, our resources to it? Would we follow it? Pray with me. Lord God, your wisdom is beyond measure. And what you have said to your people of old, you say to us today. Please, Lord, help us to understand what you are doing in the world, what you will bring to fruition. And help us, Lord, to trust you, to work with you each and every day to that end of ourselves. We cannot do this. So, Lord, we pray again for your spirit to be our teacher, our helper, our guide, and our friend. Bless us now, we humbly ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Throughout history, God has presented his people with modes and methods to accomplish this very work that we're talking about, creating community. So I ask, what is it that made and makes God so confident that he can make foes into a family, that he can heal racial, social, cultural, and class animosities and alienation? that he can make the vindictive forgiving, that he can turn the oppressor into a liberator. In other words, how can God wrestle us from our entrenched hostilities to more than just a conciliatory truce, right? Just waving of the white flag for the sake of peace. When, when it seems like that's the, the modus operandi in today's society. We've just given up, so we, we try to get along. But is that God's goal? As much as I would like to believe that the past 
two to 300 years of this country's history has been an outlier to a general progress of human relations. As students of history, we know better. And as a wise man once said, there is nothing new under the sun. We have seen the current conditions of the world and more specifically of this country's past and present before. And yet heaven is not cynical about the mixture of people from every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe, and even political persuasion. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls it a mystery revealed, a divine program, a testament to God's life-transforming grace. It's not just ideology. Paul says it's the real thing. And so the title of this message speaks to the issue in ways that challenge modern beliefs about the past, as well as gives us hope and a sign that heaven has always been active and engaged in the business of mending the brokenness of humanity, of mitigating the injustices of the past, and of bringing about a vision of a sustainable future that only God can create and sustain. In other words, God didn't just wake up in 1619 and all of a sudden decide that the ideology of Western civilization would somehow make the world a better place. And while we can tip our hat to entities like the United Nations, the NAACP, the ACLU, the Southern Poverty Law Center, their work brokers a tentative peace. And it's often elusive because as much as we strive for it, we somehow can't grab our grab it with our hands and say, this is what it is. And so I ask the question of myself and of God's people, is this what God is working for? Contentious anger boiling beneath the surface of positive cliches while neighborhoods, church services, and people groups are still segregated and at odds with one another? Must we wait until Jesus comes for all of this to change? The Bible doesn't say so. In fact, our study today, taken from Isaiah 18 to 20, points to this oft-repeated dynamic in history of a self-imposed isolation by the people of God, all for the sake of convenience. But more importantly, we see how God is addressing the plethora of problems that that raises up and provides more than a short-term remedy for a temporary peace. Let's take a guided tour to an ancient land and see how the present truth for that time was more than just an intellectual assent to a belief system that forgot it was a life-transforming hope, a practical, I, I highlight that word, practical prophetic word for their predicament and a sign that heaven's goal is to build a kingdom of people from every nation, tribe, language, and people group. So the prophet Isaiah looked out on the horizon of escalating conflicts and inner turmoil in the world, and yet with eye undimmed and inspired gaze, saw the major superpowers of the world then, Assyria and Mesopotamia and Egypt, um, southwest from Israel, that they would not sit atop the throne of empire forever. In fact, internal problems have been decimating each empire for centuries. Assyria's fortunes dipped and dive as, as Mesopotamia, that's modern Iraq and Iran, as, as this, this, 
geographic place face varying groups vying for power. You're familiar with these nations in the Bible, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the Persians, etc. So Assyria's emerging dominance, like the dominance of any empire, brought people groups into contact. And given our sinful natures, that inevitably led to conflict. Even for the people of God, if you ever read the book of 2 Kings, you will see that after Solomon's reign, shortly after the people of God got together, they broke into two kingdoms. The north was called Israel and the south was called Judah. And the northern kingdom had varying factions within the kingdom. It sounds similar to our world. Different approaches to deal with problems of political and social change were advanced. Some favored a political stance. Some wanted to pay tribute to Assyria. Some wanted to pay tribute to Egypt for their military help. Some tried to make alliances, and at other times, they tried to break them off. Other people favored a religious stance. Some people wanted to uh, engage in syncretism and, and worship God and Baal, wanted to worship Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews and the Egyptian idols, and some wanted to trust in Assyrians' gods. In Judah, the southern kingdom, things had gotten so out of control that the king during this time of Isaiah, Ahaz, made a copy of a pagan altar from Syria and started worshiping on it, leading the worship of the people of God on it. And I will remind us that this was the national policy, not just a personal and private activity. So in the midst of all of this, Assyria's growing presence, Egypt, vying for power in the world. The prophet Isaiah would give several of the most vital messages about the Messiah's advent ever to grace the heirs of humanity. And you and I are here because God looked through the corridor of human history and said there will be a kingdom. There will be a people who live authentic lives and community where righteousness and justice will reign hearts will be pure and warm with selfless love for one another and peace will rule in the hearts of his people. So King Ahaz heard the memo, but he refused the promise and he died with foreboding thoughts of peril because he didn't trust God. He didn't trust God's plan. He didn't think it possible for this promise to come to fruition without yielding to man-made policies that open the people up to broken promises. You see, Egypt was a sophisticated society. Assyria, Babylon, and the Persians were sophisticated societies. If you read their literature, which I have the privilege to do, they always talk about peace. Everyone's talking about peace and community but the problem is because hearts weren't transformed, they ended up always employing force, deception, and duplicity. And you can imagine that this will always lead to cynicism. And for God's people, cynicism always leads to faithlessness. So Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who was actually a good king, had a chance and received more pointed pointed and potent expressions of the promise of the Messiah and this community that God was promising. Satan, 
not wanting this to happen, presented Hezekiah with another plan, a plan that didn't necessitate trust in God, a plan that didn't necessitate faith in God's ways, a plan based on human devices and human methods. So given the theme of Black history this month, I wanted to focus on Egypt. If anyone knows the actual history of Egypt, they would know there was not a seamless ethnic and cultural expression where everyone was a king and queen. Actually, the likelihood would be that the majority of us would have been peasants working for daily sustenance. So this raises the question, why is there such this mythical euphoric looking back to the good old days? As the historian Otto Bettman once pointed out in his book, the good old days, they were terrible. Intrigues, despotism, opposing ideologies, shifting allegiances and migratory movements, raising cause for war. That sounds more like a page out of our newspapers today than the fanciful ideas that many people posit about the glory of Egypt. So the land of Egypt was filled with all, though it's filled with all the lore of mystical and mythical exuberance, is really nothing more than a empire seeking for hegemony or power over the world then. So when we hear about Egypt in the Bible, I'm always curious as to what people think about what life was like, what role Egypt played in the life of God's covenant people, and what Egypt has to do with faith. So our passage is actually couched in a larger section, Isaiah chapter 13 to 23, where God's people have been hearing about what God plans for the nations were. So this message about Egypt's future prospects is not a random message, but a part of God's word to his people and to the nations that the present order of things would take a swift turn. So as we confront these historical events, I want us to have perspective. God told the people the destination of his power, the destination of his presence as he orchestrated the events of history. And it's comforting on the one hand. And it's also instructive because remember, Israel is getting a chance to hear what's going to happen to these other nations. So for the previous century, from Isaiah's time, Egypt had been in the throes of eternal, internal conflict, where what would be disturbing to native Egyptians would be a change in the landscape of Israel or Egypt's ethnic and cultural and political power structure. You see, these foreigners called Hyksos came about eight centuries before and caused a disturbance in the order of Egypt's ethnic and historical development. And now with Assyria amassing great power to the east, another problem was encroaching from the west another foreign group coming into Egypt, the Libyans. So they had come in and actually taken control of Egypt for about two centuries, 200 years, leading up to the time of Isaiah. Some of the names may be familiar to you. If you've ever read the Bible and you hear the name Shishak, he was one of these Libyan pharaohs. So as they took over Egypt, the Libyans retained their language. They retained their personal names. So you can imagine how this would add to the heightened sense of difference. Though they did um, acclimate some of the Egyptian uh, language and ways, 
they looked different. They talked different. They had different names. They had different customs. So you can imagine again, conflict. Nearing the end of this era, during the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, when Assyria was steadily flexing its muscle on what's known today as the Middle East, devastating wars broke out between native Egyptian rulers vying for power against these Egyptian or these Libyan pharaohs. But now another entity comes on the scene, the Nubians from the south. And so now all of a sudden in Isaiah 18, God tells, tells Egypt, the land of buzzing wings, that's Egypt, is as good as dead. The one beyond the rivers of Cush, that's Nubia, sends messengers by sea who glide over the water's surface in boats of papyrus. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation of tall, smooth-skinned people. I like how God describes the Nubians. He, he describes them in a way so you can identify them without pointing to any ethnic features, to a people that are feared far and wide, to a nation strong and victorious whose land rivers divides. So in Isaiah's time, this man, this Nubian warrior named Pianchi became Pharaoh and his family ended up controlling all of Egypt. So the ethnic dynamic of Egypt is changing again. And it was at this pivotal moment of great ethnic mixture and international migration that God gives an indication to Egypt and to Assyria and to Israel that things were about to forever be changed. And they had the opportunity to be a part of God's great plan. But first, for transformation that God intends and will bring to fruition, there must be a great humbling and change in identity. Isaiah had told the people in chapters 1 through 12 that God was going to do this great work for them, and all the people said amen. But now God says, no, I'm not just doing it for you. I'm doing it for the world. So initially, I can hear the, the Judahites when they hear God, God decimating Egypt, they're clapping. Yes, God, humble them. Humble those good-for-nothing, power-hungry oppressors, those land-grabbing pagans, those false-worshipping sycophants. Get them, God. After all, in chapter 19, what we have described is God's breakdown of Egypt's idol-worshipping delusions. He promises mental confusion and political dissolution and economic ruin. So in Isaiah 19, 1 through 4, he says, here's a message about Egypt. Look, the Lord rides on a swift moving cloud and approaches Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him. The Egyptians lose their courage. I will provoke civil strife in Egypt. Brothers will fight against each other, as will neighbors, cities, and kingdoms. The Egyptians will panic. I will confuse their strategy. They will seek guidance from idols and from the spirits of the dead and from the pits used to conjure up underworld spirits and from magicians. I will hand Egypt over to a harsh master, Nubia. A powerful king will rule over them, says the sovereign master, the Lord who commands armies. And again, you can hear Judah's applause. Yes. But I ask, why is God saying this? 
If any one of you dear friends know anything about Egypt, I'm sure you know about the Nile River. I have sailed upstream on this peaceful river, and I've seen the communities built alongside it. Their very subsistence for life depends on it. So much so that throughout history, when the waters rose every year, that's called inundation, above the land and water that fills, the Egyptians believed that the rising of these waters was the embodiment of a god whom they named Happy. So you can imagine what Israel thought when God said these waters will be dried up. The rivers will be dried up and empty. The canals will stink. The streams of Egypt will trickle and then dry up. And then he gives a catalog of how the socioeconomic dissolution of Israel or of Egypt will occur. People will be demoralized, depressed, turning pale. They'll grieve. They'll be embarrassed. And again, you can hear the Judahites clapping, saying, yes, God, get them. Another aspect known for its wisdom, so much so that there is some connection between the Proverbs and some Egyptian wisdom literature. We don't know who borrowed from who, but we do see that these parallels. So uh, even in 1 Kings, it says Solomon was wiser than the wise men of Egypt. But here, God says Egypt's sages will be impotent to account for this drastic change in things. For them, Egypt's cultural superiority would mount a great comeback, but God said, no, the officials of Zone are nothing but fools. This is Memphis, the religious capital of Egypt, one of them. Pharaoh's advisors give stupid advice. How dare you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the sages, one well-versed in the writings of ancient kings. He says they're fools, they're misled, they're leading Egypt astray. The Lord has made them undiscerning, and they're leading astray Egypt in awe that she does. And then he gives a vivid picture so that she is like a drunk sliding around in its own vomit. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I hope you don't. But if you've ever seen it, it's not a pretty picture. It's something chaotic and out of control. And I don't want us to miss the point here. Heaven must look at us with a pitiable gaze as we engage in our foolish culture wars. Again, I mentioned earlier, God's plan was not and is not to lift up one civilization as a model for others to bend the knee to. How foolish of us to think that God sent his son for that. So he caused the wise men foolish. Their predictions hold no weight, just like those today who spend all their time trying to prove that their ideology is the best, that their culture is the best. The subsequent history of, is, of Egypt testifies and witnesses to us that folly, what it will lead to. Never again would Egypt express a pure culture as they understood it. Various kingdoms would come in and rule the country. And by this time, you can almost hear the Judites snicker and kind of rejoice. Egypt will be brought to ruin. But now we find out what God was really up to. And that's the focus of our study today. It is true that justice was, will, is, and will be served to the wicked, but grace always proceeds as the modus operandi of God's plan. And the most unbelievable prophetic vision of ethnic and international unity is pronounced by God. 
But before we look at Isaiah 19, 16 through 25, I want to jump forward a bit and see first what exactly happened in history and then circle back to see what God planned so you can see what they missed out on. Given the internal fighting within Egypt and lack of political stability, it would seem counterintuitive for God's people to trust in Egypt. And yet because a serious presence was such a cause for concern that God's people were willing to trust in the very nation that God said that he was going to break. And so we must live in the world of what could have been. You know, failed hopes can make cynics of us all and can also harden our hearts, unbeknownst to us, against God's ways and God's methods, because we look at what's going on in society and we allow that to control our thinking. And God has such a beautiful goal outlined for his people, but the leaders hedge their bets. They roll the dice. And they trusted in political maneuverings of Egypt's promises as a means to an end. The way of humility was too big a price to pay for peace. So God cries out to his people in chapter 28. You're making a covenant with death. That's how he describes Judah's dependence on Egypt as they're rejecting his plan in front of his face. So it's as if God is saying, why would you trust in the very thing that I'm planning to break? Why would you trust in a broken cistern that can hold no water? A cistern is like a big jug. Egypt told you everything's going to be all right but they would never recapture the glory of earlier periods. The fractures and fissures would turn into seismographic shifts in the arena of empire. As I mentioned earlier, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans would all come into Egypt and dominate them. God's people didn't know this, but guess what? God knew this. And so before we get to that point, he gives his people a promise. He, he cries out to them, listen, I know it's going to come down the pipeline. So I'm trying to give you a chance to experience real community where that doesn't have to happen. You see, friends of mine, God's word is not predicated on a momentary concern. Isaiah says God knows the end from the beginning, our passage that we read. And when he speaks, he's not only addressing the immediate circumstances, but in truth, he's addressing issues through his eternal and all-powerful wisdom. So Isaiah 30 through 31 details how the people just looked at God and said, we don't want that. This ancient and sophisticated society is offering us inducements where we don't have to repent where we don't have to submit to you, God, where we don't have to live righteously and justly in society. And so it seemed like a, a good choice to make for the people, given what they were looking for. And so God cries out, he says, my stubborn people, you've got plans. A cost-benefit analysis has been procured. The military-industrial complex of Egypt has been fully funded. The best and brightest minds in Egypt and the scientific and social spheres have developed complex and high-tech frameworks. But there's three problems that God lays out for them. He says, one, it's not his plan. Two, it's not of his spirit. 
And three, the medicine of Egypt is impotent for the malady of Israel's spiritual malaise. In other words, God's people were trying to use band-aids when major surgery was needed. So what did they miss out on? So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 19. God gives a prophetic word about Egypt's future, but not only Egypt's future, also his people. I want us to see how God plans to bring about a homogenous group of faithful believers from the world round to be a part of his kingdom. So first, if you've read this section before, you'll notice the way the prophets introduce a future action without reference to a specific time would be to say, in that day. So if you keep reading verses 16 through 25, you'll keep seeing this phrase repeated, in that day, in that day, in that day. So God tells his people not to look to the current political situation as the final word. He says Egypt will face a crisis that will crumble its imperial dominance. And we, as I mentioned, see that this did happen. For over six centuries, Egypt slowly deteriorated and almost became unrecognizable as a world empire. God knew that. So he keeps telling his people, don't look at what's right in front of you. Look at life through the lens of divine revelation. The vision of God's people must pierce through the cloud of cynicism and disbelief about the possibilities God promises. I know it looks bad. Trust me. I Sometimes I have to stop watching the news because it, it really looks bad. But I can't allow that to dim my view, my understanding, my activity on a day-to-day -day basis about what God says is going to happen. So he says, don't allow the present to dictate your perspective. Second, God's method to create community is to make of no effect the very things that broken people hold on to as identity markers that serve to combat a sense of equity. Some people don't want equity or equality in society. So how do we know that that was God's plan? In verse 16, listen to what he says. The Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts over them. So it's as if he's, he's drawing a picture. Egyptians are compared to fearful, shuddering women rather than strong, valiant, and fearless soldiers. So he has to take away the very thing that people use as an identity marker so that they can understand what true community should look like. If people believe that they have something that will give them an upper hand on others, it typically serves as an impediment to true community. The history of our country exemplifies that just like the histories of other countries. As long as one group or another group believes that they have some type of upper hand, whether it's ethnicity, culture, socioeconomics, or anything like that, it only serves as an impediment to true community unless it's under the power of God and used for the purpose of commingling together and empowering each other. Sadly, that is not the story of Egypt's history, and sadly, that is not the story of this country's history. Just as Judah trusting in Egypt to help against Assyria was foolish, so are our hopes that an election cycle 
a public program or a human-led movement will shift the balance in a meaningful way towards what God has envisioned. I'm not saying that there are not people out there doing good things. Please don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is what God has in mind, these things cannot bring it about. Next. In verse 18, we have something called the language barrier. Language is an interesting phenomenon because it can be used as a way to dominate people or as a method for coping. There's a reason why people in Quebec speak primarily French and we don't, right? Because if you know the wars in this country's so-called founding, um, one group one, which is why we speak English and not French. So language has been used as a way of dominating. In the same way, language has been used as a method for coping, right? There's in my wife's home country, Jamaica, they developed Patois, right? And in Haiti, they developed a, a variation of the French language. It's called code switching, where you speak in a way that those who have power over you can't really understand what you're saying. And what God is saying is that the Egyptians, everyone's going to speak the language of Canaan. That way, no one can use language as a barrier. So again, he's trying to forge our identity of how we think about communicating with each other. We shouldn't communicate to dominate or it shouldn't be necessary to try to cope. God's going to create a language for a people where we can communicate without fear of redress, without suspicion, and with transparency. Next, in verses 19 through 22, true worship is said to be the mitigating factor in terms of forging community. So it's not surprising that the very thing that was created to serve as a cohesive bond of identity, worship, has become the very mechanism of disunity in our church and in every church. Worship is supposed to create community, not because we all like the same musical notes, melodies, and instruments, but worship serves as an identifying agent of our dependence on God to deliver and to redeem all of us. So God should be the central focus of our worship. The, the music and the melodies just add to that picture. And then next in verse 23, he says to the people, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt. Egypt will go into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. So God points to a link between cultures, between languages, between ethnicities, between these hostile empires towards each other. He'll create a link, a bond between them, a link where identities are no longer forged in our past, but an identity forged in who we worship. Though I'm not cynical, I have to say that true unity, um, a healthy and holy unity, a loving and loyal unity uh, on this planet is very hard for people to envision, right? Look at what's going on right now with our dear brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. You see, if corporate identity is always subject to the mitigating force of origin, culture, language, or ethnicity, that central focus will always create difference. Hence, Egyptians, Assyrians, Israelites, Americans, uh, the French, Germans, different African nations, you know, the Australians, we all see ourselves as different, and those differences are often highlighted. But the final word in this beautiful passage, and we're coming to an end, 
is that God's community is forged in relationship to him. He says, Egypt will be called my people. My people? Unthinkable. Assyria will be the work of my hands, the work of God's hands, impossible. And Israel will be my inheritance. So I ask the question, could it be that God's people were so inwardly focused and ethnically entrenched that this picture never seemed to be a possibility? Could God really take fearsome foes and make them a family? For you see, when the Nubians ruled the world, Egypt was in such a contracted turmoil that what God planned and proposed to the unbelieving heart really did sound like a crazy utopian fantasy. So I asked the question, God says this is still going to happen. Revelation 14 tells us that. That's not the question. The question is, do we believe that? Do we live that? Do we hope that? Do we pray that? Do we invest in that? Even though everything in society looks like it's working against it. And so Isaiah gives us these two pictures of how God is going to accomplish this. In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet says, the king is coming. Rid yourselves of distractions and focus on getting things ready for the king to come. He says, there will be a highway. Make things level. Make things straight. The highway that Assyria and Egypt was on was the highway on which the coming king would traverse. So it's not just, oh, we hate each other and all of a sudden we're friends. No, it's the king who is going to make the difference. And there's no true community without the king. And that's why it, it necessitates something more than just human, human power. And so Isaiah says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And then in Isaiah 58, he gives us some of the details of what that's going to look like in terms of social engagement and in terms of how we work with people to get them to become a part of the family of God. So the king is coming. That has to control our understanding of what we're supposed to be doing right now. And finally, as we close, and most importantly, is the lamb. In Isaiah 53, probably the most famous, you know, passage to many Christians in the book of Isaiah, we hear that this lamb has to be slaughtered and slain. But I want to challenge our perspective, because usually when Christians read this, we make it an individualistic uh, proposition. But it's not just our own personal hearts that need healing. It's us as a community. Every heartache, every failure, every injustice, every hope, every dream, the Lamb of God carries. And it's he who enables us to have true healing and community. The prophet writes, but he was pierced not for my transgressions, but for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that has brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are held. So I close with an appeal to you. You know, I'm not just trying to get 
people to be saved from their own personal sins. That's amazing. That's great. Praise God for it. The next question would be, well, why is God doing that? He's doing that because he's trying to create a community of healed people who can work together, who can love one another and be at peace with each other, and not in the the way that society tells us to be politically correct, but it's authentic. So my appeal to you and my appeal to myself is, let's focus on the coming king. Let's allow his coming to so take up our energy and our focus that everything we do on this earth in our parenting, in our work relationships, in our homes, and in every arena and area of life, that that's helping us to navigate everything that we experience. And finally, let's invite people to be a part of a redeemed community whom the Messiah died for. If that's your prayer, would you pray with me? Kind Father, we thank you that you did not leave such a great work up to fallen, broken humans of our own instincts and volitions, but you have provided the resources, you have provided the hope, but more importantly, you have provided yourself to make this possible, to make us loving, to make us caring, to make us compassionate, to make us holy, to make us just, to make us true, to make us everything that it's going to take to live in your presence. And we want to do it together. So give us that unction, give us that goal, give us that vision, give us that hope. And we trust, Lord, that you are going to do what you said you will do. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.